This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. Sometimes your faith just falls apart. It goes through an apocalypse. You wake up one day to a new reality, and the old faith that you had held on to for so long no longer fits. And after this, maybe you're able to rediscover faith, or maybe it's dead forever. And the only thing you can do is grieve and leave that faith behind, that old skin in the valley of doubt. This whole process of experiencing doubt and an unraveling of faith has come to be called deconstruction. In this episode, a good friend of mine, Justin, and I talk about our own experiences of deconstruction, how we grew up in the South, in Pentecostal and charismatic cultures, how we grew up in in really difficult situations, and how we found vibrant faiths, and then how it all fell apart. This episode does feature some pretty raw depictions of depression, suicide, and physical abuse, and self-injury. If you're in a place where that is particularly difficult for you right now, this might not be the episode for you. Also, I have to say that uh, during this recording, Justin was outside for most of the time, and so there is some ambient noise. The audio quality is not the best, but I I think the content of this conversation is is still worth sharing with you. So with that, I give you deconstruction. All right, so Justin, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, it's no problem. This is uh this is really awesome. Awesome. So, we have become friends recently on Twitter and we have bonded specifically over a particular subject and that is deconstruction. Um, yeah. and, th- and that's a word that is often used to describe a deconstruction of faith, a falling apart of faith, or of a specific religious belief. And, uh, and so I wanted to have you on to talk about that. But also, listeners should know that this podcast would probably not be possible, or maybe not be quite as good, if you hadn't been involved, if you hadn't helped me so much through the through the launch like no i'm serious and also if people people like the logo will you have justin to thank for that you've been a you've been a huge huge help to me doing this starting this podcast because i have no idea what i'm doing um so you come from a pentecostal background yeah yeah i do and we're both Southerners, so I, and so we, we come from the Bible Belt. You're Pentecostal. I was raised charismatic. Yeah. And so I, I want to start this out by, by getting an idea of what that upbringing was like for you. I was born into already a broken situation. Uh, my mom divorced my biological father before I was born because um, he was abusive. He was a drug addict is maybe I, I don't know he's in prison right now and when I was a kid I really loved church I had a babysitter who would always watch me on the weekends her name was Miss Leah and she's the one who told me who Jesus is she's the one who told me that Jesus died for my sins that and 
she's the one that exposed me to what Christianity was because I would always, I would, be, I would always ask my mom, can I go spend the night with Miss Leah this weekend? I want to go to church. But I was exposed to that. And there were many instances growing up where I would, you know, quote unquote, give my, give my heart to Christ. Uh huh. But it never stuck with me because yeah. I was a child and I had no comprehension of like what I was actually saying. It was just like, oh yeah, I'm super emotional right now. And, you know, I feel really dirty. And so I'm going to give my, my heart to Jesus kind of thing. Mm. Why did you feel dirty? I think it's just the way that the, the church kind of makes you feel. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, there's, it's, it's super easy for the church to be manipulative and get a child emotional. Yes. And, and give themselves to something that they don't know that, what they're getting into. And so for me, it was like I, I just had all of these moments. And so I don't count those moments as my salvation moment, like the, the moment where I started working out my salvation. So I had all of these experiences, and I was exposed to church between my, my papa, my grandfather, I call him papa, between my papa being this being an evangelist and traveling around and preaching at different churches, um, I would always visit him when he did. I grew up in that situation. My mom remarried when I was five, five or six, you know, around the same time my, my papa married his wife now. And it was just a really hard situation. My, my stepfather, I call him dad because he's the one who raised me. He's like my best friend now. and I mm. love him to, to pieces. He's actually going to be the best man at my wedding. Like that's how close we've gotten over the years. But it was just a situation where he had to deal with a lot of pain because he grew up without a father and he didn't know how to love me. You know, you know, he had a a daughter, my sister, Sarah, and growing up felt like she was the one that got all the attention. And, you know, I wanted a father in my life. And so it, it caused me to like kind of harden my heart if I could use that term. And so I I just became really bitter. I, I became really frustrated and upset and I, you know i started hating myself and hating life because i was like I, I my my biological father's not in my life i don't think that my my stepdad likes me and my mom and my stepdad would fight all the time and they'd break up for six months and get back together and break up and and so the whole dynamic of that when my sister being involved and you know we would move between south carolina and georgia and it was just my life was a wreck I, as a kid, it, it caused me to be depressed and lash out. I got put on medication and the medication made it worse. Mm. And it got to a point to where I was 11 years old and I was like, I don't want to live anymore. Mm. I mean, as an 11 year old in the fifth grade, I was a cutter. Mm -hmm. I was put into a mental institution because of my suicidal thoughts. I had the police called on me. I ran away at one point. At one point I threatened to cut off my arm with a, uh, a shears that you, you trim trees with. Right. I mean, it, it was, it was bad. There was at one point where I, I was hallucinating. I saw millions of spiders come down at me from a tree and try to attack me. And even at one point I tried hanging myself. I don't know if my parents know that or not. I don't think I ever told them. So if they're listening, hopefully they don't get too disturbed. It's, it's a pretty stressful childhood. I relate to that. You know, I'm, I'm just hearing your, your story and I find myself empathizing because when I was 14, 
through, I would say, about 17 horrible, horrible years of my life where I was consistently suicidal. Like you, I was a cutter. I was a, actually, I was a cutter until my mid-20s. So until several years ago, very, very wow. severe cutter. You know, I, if you look at my arms, there a lot of the scars have healed, but they're just a lattice work of, of scars. And lots of abuse of pills, occasional alcohol, and I just wanted to die. My life was miserable. And so listening to you, I, I can relate to that quite a bit. Yeah, it's hard. It, it is. It really is hard. In that realm of being depressed, um, my grandfather and his wife only seemed to get into my life when they wanted to tell me that I was doing wrong. That's what mm. it felt like to me. It was mm -hmm. like they're just coming to fix me. When I was a cutter, they came and they read, I think it was Luke 6, where Legion is cutting his wrist in his cave and Jesus exercises the demons out of him and throws the demons into the pigs and they commit suicide in the water, you know, things like that. They would, they would read to me and they would talk to me about, and then I, I got caught sexting my girlfriend at 12 or 13 and they came and had a conversation with me and they were like, well, there's a plus. We know that he likes girls. And, you know. <laughs> at least we and don't they, have to worry about that gay thing. Yeah. And, um, it led up to so, so, so much bitterness towards them. I was like, they never just want to have a relationship. They never want to just take me out and have ice cream or go get a hot dog. They never want to do these things. It's always in the goal of fixing me. And then there was a point where um, it, it's really hard for me to kind of like tell this this part of my story because um, it's it's so deep and personal and, and I kind of haven't reconciled it with uh, the person involved. I don't know if I'm going to cry or not. just want to give a warning of that. But there was, there was a point when I was 13 and it was um, it was at, it was at a point where I was really, really angry. And I hated everybody, just like I said earlier. But this was at, at the, the peak of all of it. My, my mom or my stepdad, I don't remember who, asked me to go get the groceries out of the car. And the door was locked. And I, I just, all that anger and, and hatred and, and everything that was built up inside me, I just, I erupted like a volcano. I was mad. And so me and my little weak puny 13 year old body i got mad and i i hit the the door of, of our car i saw our window fall out of our garage and so i got curious and i wanted to go inspect it and so i i went up and i tried to walk into the, to the door and my stepdad went off on me he grabbed me by my shirt and he threw me on the ground like threw me on the ground and I got up and he did it again. And then he tried spanking me, uh, during this process. And so I don't know what to do. So I try to fight back because I'm being thrown on the ground 
I tried to run away and he, he pinned me down on the couch and my mom's like standing there like screaming, what are you doing? Stop it. Don't like responding. And like, she, she recognizes this is not okay. He got up, grabbed his things and walked out the door. And, uh, my mom and him separated. I went to the emergency room because I had bruising all over me. You could see like finger marks around my wrists and on my collarbones. At that point, emotionally, I was numb. There was, there was nothing. I felt nothing. And my mom didn't know what to do with me because I was an emotionless human. I was just, I, I, I'd hit depression so hard after that. And so she sent me out of every place possible to go live with my grandparents, the ones who wanted to fix me. Which it's it, talking about it now is like it, it's kind of like an emotional roller coaster. I I wanted to cry, and then now I'm laughing because it's like I see the irony in it. It's just hilarious. But it, they're traveling evangelists. That's what they do for a living. They preach. And every day is church. And so I was in church every day. And being in that environment, at first I hated it. I didn't want anything to do with it. It was disgusting and revolting to me. I, I, I just, I was like, I don't want to be here. I'm, I'm pissed off at the world and I don't need anybody. I have myself. Why were you disgusted by it? I think I was disgusted by by it because of how it was portrayed to me at, at the moment. Because I didn't want to be around an environment of people that only wanted to fix me. Because looking at it now, it's dehumanizing. And I didn't like that. It just it made me feel disgusting. And because of that, there's a car pulling up. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know if they're checking me out or whatever. So, oh no, they're turning around. Okay. I'm like... I'm a weirdo on the phone in the middle of a church parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I felt disgusted because it, it kind of like took my humanity away. It, it made me this object that needed to be fixed. And eventually that changed. I was in church so much and I started playing the drums everywhere that I went. I, I got involved. And through that process, I cut my hair because I was told that I had like the long swoopy emo hair and I was told that, you know, men didn't have long hair because it's a sin. And so I cut my hair to be able to play drums in the church. Mm, That's mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. This is where the beginning of my salvation started. I went to this church in the middle of nowhere and this dude preached on the tabernacle and I didn't know what the freak a tabernacle was. I'm a 13 year old emo kid. I was sitting there in the service and he's talking about like slitting the lamb's throat and like cutting this plush lamb's throat and talking about like the different pieces of the tabernacle. Wait, wait, I don't wait, know. wait, 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 hold up. Okay. So he cut a plush lamb's throat in the service. Yeah. Oh my. Okay. That, that that's exciting. Okay. Go on. Oh, oh yeah. But, um, I, I'm in the service. I don't know what's going on. I don't know like what they're talking about. Not really paying attention. And um, there was a moment where I, I would, I guess it was like my first spiritual encounter where I 
I just realized that my life was pretty messed up. The pastor that was preaching, uh, he did an altar call. And so I grabbed my papa by the hand. I took him down to the altar. Um, and for, for those of you who are listening that don't know what altar is, it's literally just the front of the church where people talk. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I, I went up there to the altar and I'm weeping. And I'm mm. like, Papa, I need Jesus. And so we we prayed together. It was my first time really praying. And that's when things changed for me. Um, prior to that experience, I was baptized at eight years old. So I had always counted that as like a significant spiritual marker for me. But it was never a cognitive thing for me. It was never this switch where it's like, okay, this I, I need this. And so that happens. And if you're scientific and you want to call this just, you know, some kind of rush of dopamine or serotonin, or if you want to say that I, I was processing through my emotions from my childhood, to me, it was, a, it was an encounter with Jesus. And I still had the same desires. I still wanted to go have sex. I still wanted to smoke weed. I still wanted to drink alcohol. I wanted to do all of these things. And none of that changed until mm-hmm. I went to church camp. I went to church camp Uh-oh. and I was the little hellion. I was the rebel at church camp. I was like, there are a lot of fine ladies at this church camp. I don't care if they're wearing skirts or dresses down to the floor. I like them. And, um, <laughs> See, I was, I was the, uh, I was the hellion who was like, there are a lot of cute guys here. <laughs> <laughs> The whole time I was there, the services really, really sunk in with me. I didn't know what they were talking about, but there was like this emotional connection that I had with the services, but it was in a way where I wasn't looking forward to the preaching. I was looking forward to the altar. Mm. I was looking forward to praying and having that, that moment with God like I'd had prior. And so day and night, I was like every time we had like three services a day at this church camp. So, like, I would pray in the morning time, God, I love you, I know I'm a messed up person, and I know that there's more of you, and I I just want more of who you are. And that was what I was praying every day for, like, three or four days. And then on the last day, it was a Thursday, the youth pastor came up to me while I was praying, I was praying the same thing I had prayed, and he was like, hey, have you ever been baptized before? I was like, yeah, man, I've been baptized before. I was baptized when I was eight years old. And he was like, hey, have you ever received the Holy Ghost? And I was like, no, I don't know what that is. And he was like, all right, start praying. <laughs> so I start praying. And then he's praying for me. Then his wife comes and prays for me. Then like, there's just the whole congregation I was a part of comes over and starts praying for me. And um, all of a sudden, I start speaking in tongues. And I'm like... I didn't know what was going on, but in that moment, I could not hate like I did before. I yes. couldn't. I, tr- I tried to. I tried to hate my, my stepfather. I couldn't hate him. I tried to hate my mother. I couldn't hate him. I tried to hate my, my biological father, and I could not hate him. And I just I couldn't stop speaking in tongues. And it was such – it was like – it was almost like 
I was submerged in water, but from the inside, it was like, I felt whole. It was like, I felt, I felt joy in a way where I'd never felt before ever in my entire life. I had never felt that way before. And it was euphoric. It was like, I almost, I almost ran. Like I see I was so happy. I almost started running. And this mm. was like, I wasn't even exposed to that culture. I, I wasn't exposed to the running at that point. <laughs> to, I the, wasn't to the running in Pentecostal circles. Yes. Yeah. And I wasn't, I wasn't exposed to really speaking in tongues. I didn't pay attention to it. I didn't know what was going on. Really. I went up to my Papa after service and I was like, Papa, I got the Holy ghost. And he was like, Oh, that's so awesome. And then I told, uh, I told my step grandmother, I was like, Hey, I, I got the Holy ghost. And she was like, I know I was right there praying for you. She said, I told God that man, he better get the Holy ghost or I don't know what I'm going to do with him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and so that's where my journey started. Um, it shifted to this place to where for those of you who don't know the Pentecostal tradition, it's just like everything else. There's more liberal and there's more conservative. And I was in the most conservative that there was like we were one step away from being snake handlers. Like it was, I've actually been in a snake handling church before freakiest thing ever, but the women had skirts to the floor, no tight clothing they had to swim in jean skirts and f like three or four layers of baggy clothing so you couldn't see their bras. And they didn't cut their hair. And guys had to cut their hair. They had to have short hair because Paul said it's a shame for a man to have long hair. And nobody wore jewelry because Paul said not to wear jewelry. And, and so I'm in this environment. It's like it's that way. And at first it was awesome. But – Eventually, I started feeling pretty shameful, not in the way that I was before where I felt dirty because I felt sinful, I guess, kind of. Um, but I felt sinful in a different way because I would go to these different churches and everybody would be speaking in tongues. And I thought about the time when I spoke in tongues and I couldn't speak in tongues again. It just it couldn't happen. And everybody was like praying in tongues. And I was like, is there something wrong with me? Am I not doing it right? Am I sinful? And this carried on for a really long time. And, and I mean, let me just, just interject here. That is important in the Pentecostal setting because the Pentecostal tradition believes in what's called the second blessing, where the first blessing, it, to, now correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong about this, but the first blessing is salvation, is when yeah. you receive the Holy Spirit within your heart, and that is salvation. But then the second blessing is when you receive the Holy Spirit upon you, when he falls upon you in power. And yeah. that is the second blessing. And the sign in Pentecostal traditions for the second blessing is speaking in tongues. And so, yeah. and so if you don't speak in tongues, you haven't powered up. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're not fixing to fight the the final boss in the the game of life like that. It's just not happening. <laughs> you, you, exactly. Yeah. You, yeah, you yeah. don't have the power, and so for me, I felt super shameful. I was like, "Am I sinful? Do I not have enough faith?" Like Jesus said, you have to have faith of a mustard seed, and say into this mountain, "Be thou removed," and cast into the sea. And I'm like standing out at my window 
looking at the mountains, because at the time I lived in Athens, Tennessee, which is at the foothills to the Blue Ridge Mountains, and I was looking at mountains going, be thou removed, and they weren't moving, and I was like, is there something wrong with me? Like everybody's, everybody's telling me that, that this is how this Jesus thing works. I, I felt so so dirty and shameful. I was like, do I not have enough faith? And is there something wrong with me? Am I not a good person? Does Jesus not love me anymore? And so I, I'm in this environment for nine months. And man, I'm still processing a lot of it. A lot of it I forgot because I guess I buried it. And I, I keep like reawakening it, but I was and still am undoubtedly Pentecostal. I moved out of my grandparents' home and back in with my parents because we were just always fighting. They were like, my grandparents found me watching porn and that was the end of the world. Man, a 14 year old watching porn. So shocking and life changing, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I am. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I had to lie to them. Like, no, I didn't watch porn. And the only time I had the access to it was whenever I went and visited my mom. And so, yeah, I would go and I'd watch porn for a few hours on her laptop when she was asleep, go to bed, and uh, go back to Tennessee. I saw my mom once a month. That's how that worked for nine months. So I moved out, and um, I moved back in with my mom, and my mom got with my stepdad again. And from there, everything was perfect. It was like... It was like this restoring of my life. I met my best friend, Angel. He, he was there when I needed somebody. He is a black Puerto Rican named Angel, and he is the coolest dude ever. He got me into hardcore music, so I started listening to bands like Four Today and Gideon yes. and The Great Commission and like all of these like really big Christian hardcore bands. And so I started worshiping the hardcore music. That was my expression of worship. I would go to shows. I would get in the mosh pit and I would feel the full presence of God come over me just like when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that was my experience too. You know, I would go to these huge uh, Christian metal festivals and where I encountered God was in the mosh pit. Yeah, and, and people think I'm crazy whenever I say that. They're like, why would you feel God if you're fighting people? And I'm like, it's not about fighting and I'm like, it's, you have no idea. <laughs> it, it's hardcore dancing. Exactly. It's just like, just like David. David danced in the street. He took off his royal garments, and yep. he danced before the Lord. And that's what I did. And it it was just it was such a bliss. Yes. And I know he, I know exactly what you're talking about. You you get into like this fugue state at those concerts, and it's it's really incredible. some of my story with I would love for you to because I find a lot of parallels in, in our stories and 
I had this extraordinary salvation experience when I was 17 years old. And like you, I was a cutter. And actually, like I said earlier, I was a cutter through my mid-20s. And I mean a hardcore cutter. And so that was my drug. That was my thing I went to. I don't know if it would technically be called an addiction, but it was definitely a compulsion. And it just controlled my life. And that, that came into my life when I was 14. And then I went to a Christian high school. And it was at that Christian high school where my life really started to fall apart. And, you know, looking back now, I see the beginnings of mental health issues that I've carried with me my entire life. That was also when I first started to realize that I'm gay. Dearly hoping that this was a phase and the slow horror as I started to realize, no, this isn't a phase. And so I plummeted into very, very, very dark depression and it just got worse and worse and worse. I was consistently suicidal throughout high school and my world just became very dark. This was the beginning of my senior year when I was 17 and I went into the bathroom and I cut myself very deeply and then I left the bathroom. My mom happened to be in the school at the time. She found me in the hallway with my sleeve covered in blood. And she panicked, of course. She took me home. And that was my last day at that school. And that week ranks as maybe one of the darkest weeks of my life. Where I remember that night, the night I cut myself really, really horribly in the bathroom and my sleeve was covered in blood. That night when I was trying to go to bed, it was as if this abyss opened before me. And I look back now and I realize that it was a, a very, very deep depression. It was like this total abyss of blackness and coldness and hopelessness to such a degree that I didn't even really feel fear. It was, it was a coldness and a nothingness that seemed to go straight to my core and it enveloped me. Yeah. And I remember I, my sister was in college. She was away at college and I was so desperate for company. I was so desperate for some kind of comfort. I went into her room and I collected all her stuffed animals and I carried them with me into my bedroom and I just held on to them and I hugged them and cried and cried and cried and cried. Wow. And to me, that was the end of my life. To, in, in my mind, that was the end. And I woke up the next morning and I knew that that was my last day on earth. I knew that this was it and that I was going to go out to the shed and hang myself. My, a friend of mine, my best friend, Nathan, he was the only really good friend I had. And like me, he's gay. And he talked on the phone with me, completely unaware that if he hadn't talked to me on the phone, he probably would have, I probably would have killed myself. And then after I hung up with him, I was still on the verge of committing suicide. And I ended up calling a youth pastor friend of mine named Adger. And it's like Badger, but without the B. And I called up Adger and I spilled my guts to him and I told him everything. And what he said to me was, Stephen, this is not the end. God is not overwhelmed by this. God is love and God is big enough 
God is big enough to handle this. And yeah. what he what he didn't know is that he was telling that to a kid who was about to kill himself. And so that got me through the day. So later later <laughs> that week, I met with a prayer group. And this prayer group basically told me to my face, wow, you're really messed up. I don't know how to pray for you. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they were like, wow, you're really messed up. I, I really I really don't know what to do with this. <laughs> I really don't know what to do with you. But what the head of that prayer group said was, all I'm feeling is that Jesus wants to enter into a new relationship with you. And, and so why don't you ask for that? And so I said, okay, well, I've tried everything else. And if, if this doesn't work, if this Jesus thing doesn't work, I'm going to kill myself. So I prayed and I said just something really simple, which was, Jesus, wherever you are, please come into my life so that I can know you. And the instant I prayed that, I felt this loving presence enter the room. And it was the spiritual presence of Christ. And I felt him there. It was like I felt the presence and the heartbeat of God. And in that instant, all of the anguish, all of the darkness just vanished. It was, it was an instantaneous thing. It was this instantaneous transformation. That experience carried me through a lot. That experience got me through a lot of darkness. Yeah. And it carried me for many years. And that brings us, I guess, to when things fall apart. I think at this point, we need to start getting really technical because deconstruction is just to go on a philosophy rant. There was a guy named Derrida who kind of created this idea of deconstruction. It's where you take two things and you look in between it. You, you, break, you break it apart and you find the middle ground. That might, if, if there's philosophy nerds and I just screwed that, please have grace on me. Derrida is really smart and hard to understand. Derrida created this idea of deconstruction. Derrida was a Jew, was in the time of the Holocaust, and he settled in, I think, Paris, France. He went through a lot of religious pain, and so through that, that pain and that struggle, he invented the thinking process of de deconstruction. And that's a part of the process of deconstruction is experiencing pain. It, it's not necessarily only about faith and religious ideas. It could be any epistemological idea, epistemology being why we believe what we believe, which deconstruction is a smaller segment of this wider philosophical view, view called postmodernism, which is a whole nother ballpark. But anyway, that, that's kind of how I started deconstruction was I was exposed to postmodernism. And so you were exposed to that in college. Yeah, yeah. My first year was, I was a full-on evangelical fundamentalist. I thought I was the bee's knees. I, I thought I was, I was the great prophet that the book of Revelation speaks of. I thought that I was going to change the world and tell everybody how we need to live a life being prophetic. And I thought that I had dreams and visions that were going to change the world. And 
I thought I was going to bring revival to the world. I thought, like, it was bad. I, I got really prideful, really cocky. So there were some delusions of grandeur there, basically. Yeah. That's where I was. I was like, the world's on fire, and I'm here to say that I'm the firefighter. I'm going to extinguish it. Everybody's going to heaven because of me. As, as Chris Shelton, who I did an interview with, he's a former Scientologist, as, as Chris Shelton said, never underestimate the, the power and the danger of a young person who's bent on saving the world. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to do. So my deconstruction began my second year of college. So I had this fire under me where I was like, I got to get things done. I got to do my work. I'm trying to do my schoolwork and I'm doing everything that I can. And all of a sudden, I'm in this ethics class and I read a book called Kingdom Ethics. Great and book, David Gushy. One of our. You've read it? I haven't read it, but I know of David Gushy very well. Uh, he recently came out in support of gay marriage and wrote a fantastic book about it called Changing Our Mind. And he is now a, a huge vocal advocate for gay people in the church and for, and for gay rights. And, and so, yeah, great guy. So I, I am reading this book, I was reading this chapter about how the German church supported Hitler and how they were like, oh, these Jews are they're really causing problems in our country. They were like, this man knows what he's talking about. Yes. And little by little, Hitler started changing things and getting into the mind and feeding into racism and feeding into everything that this country was going for and feeding into nationalism. And so eventually he rose to power through the support of the church and created the fascist Nazi Germany. Yes. And I'm reading about the racism and how the church loves him and supports him and the church wants him to do great things and how they don't like this, this people group who's a minority. And I'm like, that sounds like Donald Trump. <laughs> so, yes. so I'm like, what? Yes. I'm like, I'm like sitting there and, and I'm like, I'm a Republican. Mm. I'm like, I'm like, I'm a Republican. And this sounds like the Republican dude that, that everybody wants right now. Yes. He was the only Republican running at the time. And I was horrified that Ted Cruz got out. I wanted Ted Cruz to, to, to be president because I was a good Republican and my friends liked Ted Cruz. Yes. So I reached this moment where I'm like, I want to vote. What do I believe? Mm. And I asked that question to myself. I said, what do I believe? Because this sounds like Trump. Hitler sounds like Trump. This man who's supported by the church, who's said to be a good Christian, who hates this minority group, who's rising to power through the support of all of these people and wants to bring change by force. Yes. I'm like, what do I believe now? Because who do I vote for? Because at the time, it was my, it would, it would, it was my first time voting. I was like, I don't know. So I, I took this political test online. And it said that all of my views <laughs> supported Bernie Sanders. And I was like, <laughs> what? I was like, I hate Bernie Sanders because he's a socialist. He's, <laughs> he's the atheist socialist. I know. And I'm like, I, I have all of these views because Jesus would think like this. And I'm like, Bernie Sanders thinks like Jesus. I thought Republicans think like Jesus. And so I'm... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm having an identity crisis. I'm yes. like, what do I believe? Yes. And then I, I'm like, I'm like, Bernie Sanders is completely on board with making sure our planet doesn't crumble and yes. free healthcare and free college and equality and women's rights. And I'm like, what else do these liberals like? And so I, I'm like, Black Lives Matter started happening. Mother Emanuel got shot in Charleston. And, and you know, that I'm here, I'm here in the Charleston area. That hit hard. And so I start following Black Lives Matter. And then I start uh, adopting feminist ideas. The only thing that I didn't support was the LGBTQ community. And it was like, I was, I was at this place where I, I thought it was a sin. I thought it was wrong. But I saw an issue with the church and the way that the church handled it. Because I thought it was a sin, I said, well, if that's a sin, what about the other sins that pastors do? Mm. What, what about the gluttonous pastors that are on stage that stuff their faces? And, and what about the, the pastors who are like secretly watching porn? Yes. I had these thoughts and I was like, I think that gay people can be ministers. Yes. When I brought that up to some people, they didn't like that. Yeah. They didn't like that at all. They were like, that's like saying that it's okay to have sex before marriage. And it brought up this whole ordeal where people didn't want to budge on this. And I supported it. And little by little by little, I started realizing that it's okay. It's yes. okay to be LGBTQ plus, whether you're non-binary or, or everything that falls into this, this category just thinking about the deconstruction that I went through, I know that that's just a small part, but I, I really want to touch on that because yeah, for right sure. now that that is the biggest thing in my life that I am so, so, so for because it's, it's a people group and a community that is in the margins. Yes. They're still looked down upon and it's not okay. Yes. Just like racism. It's not okay to look down on Hispanics. It's not okay to look down upon black people. It's not okay to look down upon Asians. It's not okay. Racism, separation is not okay. It, it, it creates this shamefulness and this oppression in our society that we have created for so long, not only in the church, but also like just in our, our nation. Like Our nation was founded upon oppression. Slaves yes. built the White House. But it's still not over. There's still racism. I mean, I, I, I live in the South. You live in the South. We know that racism is still alive and running. And, and in the same way, the LGBTQ community is pushed off to the side and, and fingers are pointed at them. Yes. And it's not okay. That's not what Acts 2 talks about. The Holy Spirit being poured out upon all flesh because they were all in unity. Unity is saying that we look different and we don't think the same way. But we're in this together. Yes. And yes. It, it's just, it's, it's an issue and a problem. And I had to get on that rant because, man, that is such a big part of, of this other side of deconstruction. So it sounds a lot like your deconstruction has two phases or, or two parts. The first was an academic and philosophical part where... Yeah where you started to sit down and really examine your faith and the faith that you held, the faith that you had, your hardcore conservative Pentecostalism, 
started to fall apart. It started to come undone at the seams. And then it sounds like the second part of the deconstruction had to do with, for lack of a better term, politics. That it was a, a political shift or a, a realization at the monstrosity of what is going on in the world. Connecting that to David Gushy's book, talking about the religious support of Nazism and how up until less than a century ago, the church, all three branches of Christianity, Protestantism, Catholicism, and Orthodoxy were all united by one thing, and that was anti-Semitism. And, yeah. and how the church in Germany supported Hitler. And, yeah. And how you are connecting that to the church's support of Trump today. Yeah. Well, it, it started first politically. Okay. Po politics was first. I didn't get into philosophy until after that political realization happened because I went up to my dean after reading that chapter in that book and after everything politically soaked in and I walked up to him and I was like, hey, I think that the gospel is about social justice. I think the gospel is about uniting people and not making people outcasts. I think it's about reaching into the margins and reaching out to the oppressed and making equality a thing. He was like, that's how I view the gospel. And he told me, he said, what you have just discovered, it takes some people 40, 50, 60 years to yes, realize. decades. And then when they realize it, they go through deconstruction at that age. He didn't tell me deconstruction because I didn't know what that was at the point. He knew I was on this journey. He knew that that was the beginning of it. He, he told me, he said, some people go through, you know, 40, 50, 60 years before they realize it. And then when they learn that, everything crumbles for them. Yes. And which, which is, is kind of like a foreshadowing of, of what I was going to go through. And that's when my faith got dark. Mm. It got dark because I was in a place of mid-deconstruction where everything was broken apart and nothing was put back together. Mm, yes. I got depressed. I got anxious. I would drive at night and I would become numb and I would just weep. And I would be like, I don't know who I am, what I'm doing. I don't know what's real anymore. Mm. And I didn't start reconstruction until I stumbled upon the liturgist. Mm, yes. I, I was in a, I was in a broken place for so long and I found the liturgists. What attracted me to them was they had an episode on epistemology. Yes. And Great episode. That was, that was the first episode that I, I listened to. And, and so then I'm like, I'm going to start from the beginning and I'm going to listen to every single one of these podcasts. Hmm. And through that process, I got to the point to where my faith started making sense again. It began being reconstructed. Now I'm at this place where I feel so much contentment.
story and hearing you talk uh, over the past hour and a half, there are some things that kind of come to the fore. And especially listening to your early story of what life was like for you as a middle schooler and as a teenager and how it was out of that incredible brokenness. And it was, this is the same for me, that out of that incredible brokenness came the, this really intense spiritual experience. And we found kind of this, this hardcore faith. What strikes me about that is that you can't really tell where the brokenness ends and the religion begins. And, yeah. how, and how seamlessly they bleed into one another. How one creates and builds the other. And that was very much the case for me. And what I see in your story is an ongoing journey of an evolving faith. And that your faith is not this static thing. It isn't this unmoving thing. But, but that your, your faith is an evolving thing. Your faith is in this ongoing process of self-reformation and it is moving towards love. Yeah. And, and I think that is a, a really, really beautiful thing. And, you know, just listening to you talk, it, it makes me think of my own process of deconstruction. And for me, it has been a long, long, long journey. It has been a long, hard process. I think back to when I was a child, my father read the Chronicles of Narnia to me. At the very end of the series, in the book The Last Battle, the, the sister uh, of the Pevensey's children, Susan, is not part of the book anymore. She's not part of the story. And at the very end, near the end of The Last Battle, there is this scene, there's this little bit of dialogue. Uh, it goes, Sir... If I had read the Chronicles of Right, there should be another. Has not your majesty two sisters? Where is Queen Susan? My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace, and whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy, you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Mm. You know, Narnia is, a, is an allegory. It is a children's allegory for Christianity. And mm -hmm. when I asked my father, when he read that to me, to, to explain that scene to me, he said, oh, well, Susie, or Susan, she stopped believing. She saw Narnia and Aslan, who's the Christ figure, and all the adventures that the children had had in Narnia, which were basically allegories for Christian life and Christian living. He said, she stopped believing, and she saw them as, as, as children's games, and now she isn't in heaven and that's where this conversation takes place is in heaven <laughs> after they've all died basically that story God. that story terrified me because from a very young age i learned that to doubt to question to look back and say oh that was all delusion or oh maybe i was wrong that terrified me yeah now i find myself in the really terrifying place now of being susan of being the person who now doubts, being the person 
who no longer believes in Narnia, at least not the way I used to. Yeah. I think about what got me here. I think the first moment of deconstruction for me was when I was in Youth with a Mission. I was a missionary, and I remember I went out to Taco Bell, and, and I was there alone. And out of the blue, this thought came, which was, when I pray, when I ask for sustenance, when I ask for food or financial support or whatever, when I pray for that, it comes to me. But there are millions and millions and millions of children who die and who starve and who live oppressed by violence and disease, who cry out to God every moment of their lives and they get nothing. And why is yeah. why am I the lucky one? Why do I deserve this? I struggle to find an answer in the weeks that followed and in the months that followed, but I just could not find an answer. And so I buried it away, but it, it, it stayed there. It stayed with me. And I think that was the first chink in my armor. I think that was the, the first moment when I, when I started to realize, well, maybe my faith doesn't have it all figured out. Maybe I have a simplistic view of God. It, it, it's almost like you can imagine my faith as this pane of glass and how, you know, you throw one rock at it and there, and there is a little fracture. There, there's a, there are those lightning streaks in the glass as it starts to break. So that was the first rock. And then the second rock that hit me was when I was in college and I had this professor who was wonderful, a philosophy professor, and he taught a, a philosophy 101 course and he covered the history of philosophy and the, and the foundational thoughts through the history of Western thought. This devastated me because I found myself agreeing more with Camus and Nietzsche than I did with Christianity. It made sense to me that the world was this vast void and that it was ultimately inhospitable to ourselves. It was, it was ultimately indifferent and inhospitable to human life and that human consciousness is just a blip in the history of the universe. That made sense to me and that devastated me. Yeah. And so I, and so I sent an email to, to Dr. Wells and I asked him, how do you deal with this? How do you stay a Christian as a professor of philosophy? Because I'm going through this massive crisis of faith. And he uh, emailed me back saying, well, let's talk. We made a time to talk. And in that conversation, he said, well, you know, I have a crisis of faith about once a year and I see it as my job as professor of philosophy to trigger a crisis of faith in my students. And he said, I'm glad that I've accomplished that with you. That's my job as professor of philosophy is to, is to trigger students into a place of crisis. And, and he did it. He accomplished it. And then he yeah. said, and then he said, have you ever heard of Kierkegaard? And I hadn't. And he pointed me in the direction of Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard, in which Kierkegaard basically says that faith is irrational and that faith is foundational to the human experience. And that we have to cross this chasm of faith with fear and trembling. And that on, on one side, we look 
across that chasm and there's no there there's there's no guarantee that God is real. There's no guarantee that he mm. is actually there. None whatsoever. But we cross that chasm of doubt with fear and trembling against all odds, against all evidence. It is ultimately an irrational leap of faith. And then we get to the other side of that chasm and it makes sense. And we no longer have proof. We don't have proof of God, but we have an intimate connection with God. We have an intimate relationship with God in the face of absurdity, in the face of irrationality and the impossible. We have a relationship with God. That vision of faith transformed my life. Yeah. That, that vision of, of belief changed me. You know, Anne Lamott, in her book, Traveling Mercies, describes how reading Fear and Trembling by Kierkegaard brought her to faith. And she has this beautiful passage where she says, essentially, I, I don't know why and I don't know how, but I believed. It made sense. And wow. that was Fear and Trembling. For me, that was Kierkegaard for me, and I, I sometimes feel like my faith journey is like I'm driving in this car through a desert, and I drive and I drive and I drive, but then the car starts to break down, or it starts to run out of gas, and then just in time, I find a gas station where I'm able to fuel up, and I'm able yeah. to, and I'm able to get my car repaired, and that was what Kierkegaard was for me. It was a filling station, and that got me through years of coming to terms with being gay, coming to terms with, um, with the fact that my orientation is not going to change. And what does that mean about me? What does that say about me? And what does that say about God? I think the most devastating hit to my faith was Catholicism. I fell in love with the church. I fell in yeah. love with Catholicism. And I have never fallen in love with the church, with a church, the way I have fallen in love with the Catholic church. Uh, Eve, Eve Tushnet, who is a, a celibate gay Catholic writer, she says that when she became Catholic, she fell in love with the whole of Catholicism, with Oscar Wilde and the architecture and the music and the history and the mysticism mm -hmm. and the poetry and the liturgy. She fell in love with yeah. all of it. It was this full-blooded, full-body romance with Catholicism, mm -hmm. and, and that was my experience. But there was a problem, and there were several problems. The first problem is that I'm gay, and this was the point at which I was realizing that I needed to accept that I'm gay or else my life is going to spiral out of control. And the Catholic Church strongly forbids homosexuality. They call it intrinsically disordered. They are famously anti-gay. And there were certain teachings that I just could not get behind. The infallibility of the Pope, for example. The, mm -hmm. the infallibility of the church as a whole, that the Catholic Church is the one true church and it possesses the fullness of Christ. And if you are part of a Christian tradition outside of Catholicism, well, you might still be Christian, but you don't have the fullness of Christ. The way the Catholic Church used the Eucharist as a weapon and as a carrot to keep people coming back, to keep luring them, them back, and as a weapon to, to beat people with 
if mm. they are in mortal sin. So if you're mm. gay, if you're a female priest, if you're divorced, you can't receive the Eucharist anymore. And this caused me so much anguish. This caused me so much agony because here is this church where I finally felt at home. Here is this church that I finally loved, but I could not accept the teachings and I could not accept myself as a Catholic. Mm -hmm. Looking at the absurdity of things like the Immaculate Conception, which is the belief that Mary was born without sin so that she would go on to become the vessel to carry Christ, or the infallibility of the Pope, or yeah. all, all of this stuff, I, I started to realize how easily abused, this tr how, how easily these teachings could become weapons of abuse, mm -hmm. and how alien they were to me. But then that started to reflect back on my own Protestant upbringing and things that I took for granted, like the authority of Scripture, like the reality of the Trinity, that God is three in one, Jesus, Father, and Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of that stuff started to break down for me because as I looked at Catholicism and saw the things that I disagreed with, that it was almost like that bounced back on me and made me examine the things that I took for granted. And the whole thing came crumbling down. This, is, this has taken many years, but I now find myself in a place where I am inwardly a Christian. I still love Jesus, but when it comes to outer truth claims, I can't go beyond the claims of science. But do I still love Jesus? Do I still love God? Do I believe that he is this profound guiding myth? And I don't say myth as a downgrade. I mean myth in the most all-encompassing and respectful way possible. That's where I find myself. And it's deeply uncomfortable. It is an ongoing process. And so there are some days where I am more atheist than others. There's... <laughs> There are days when I wake up and I'm and I totally agree with with Richard Dawkins, <laughs> and then and then there are other days when I wake up and it seems so clear to me that Christ is Lord and that that, that Christ is real and that He was raised from the dead. What's uncomfortable about this place is that there is no certainty, and I think the greatest sacrifice that I've made through this deconstruction process, is the joy of certainty, the confidence that comes with certainty, the assurance that my soul is immortal and will be in heaven with God after I die for all eternity. I don't have that assurance anymore. Yeah. It's a really, really deep grieving process. So yeah. basically what I have left right now is this profound guiding myth. I have this, this inner powerful faith with which I, and it isn't just a head trip. I, I tangibly experience the presence of God. I really do. I pray the daily office. I pray the Episcopal daily office every morning and I feel the presence of God. I'm a yoga teacher. I feel the presence of God as I teach yoga or when I'm in my yoga practice. I feel yeah. him speaking to me. I still speak in tongues because I too came from a charismatic setting. 
And so it isn't just a head trip. It is an experiential faith. And I love it. And I feel like it enriches my life and tangibly improves my life and makes me smarter and kinder and more loving. But at the same time, I have to accept that it might not be true. And that's a hard place to be. I still consider myself a Christian, mm-hmm. but I would probably be considered, I am consider. I would be absolutely considered heretical by, by most other Christians. So that's where I am. I relate to that a lot too. Not an uncertainty of experiencing God. There are some days where I think to myself, if I'm wrong and everybody else is right and I'm a heretic, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in flames. Mm. And it makes me fearful. I, I am a Christian too, and I'm, a, I'm undoubtedly Christian, and I'm undoubtedly Pentecostal. And I say that I'm Christian by I follow the, the teachings of Jesus yes. from what I, I think they are. Yes. Um, but at the same time, it's almost like I'm a Christian nihilist, <laughs> where it's like, life has no meaning, we're all going to die, <laughs> one day our species is going to exist no more and everything that we've ever thought, everything that anybody's ever worked for is going to be pointless. It's going to wither away. Yeah. And that is nerve wracking. Yes, it is. It is nerve wracking to think, what is the point of all of this? I mean, one day the sun's going to swell because of the energy that it's emitting and it's going to consume the earth. Earth's going to look like Venus one day. What's that going to mean for our species? I would like to think that Jesus is going to come back one day. I would like to imagine Christ incarnate descending from heaven. But there's this nihilist in me that says, this is is all crap. This is a short little place of existence. And it, it makes me think for a second where... I realize, because I, I 100% believe in God, um, I might sound atheist sometimes, but, but I, I have spiritual encounters with God that there's no way that I, I can't believe in God. Yes, me um, too. I will, I will always believe in God in some way, in some yeah. shape or form. I think there will always be a part of me that believes in God for, I mean, for as long as I'm alive. Yeah. And that the, the, the practices are the only thing that keeps that keep me. Like the practices that I do that I experience God, I, I do meditation, I do centering prayer, I drive and listen to music. Pantheism and panentheism are two different things. It's like pantheism is the universe is God and then panentheism is like the universe is God plus more. Yes. Um, which is just a, a simple way to describe that. And, you know, I fall more along the lines of panentheism than pantheism. And so I, I just relate to that. And I'm like, there's beauty and life and everything. And it's, it's in that that I'm like, you know, God is in the trees. God is in the flower. God is in me. God is in, I am not God, but God is in me. And God is in the, the star. God is yes in the action of the person feeding the homeless. God is in this big organism of the universe. The universe is alive, and God is in that. But God is also separate from that. And so it's just all of these different things 
and in that I find assurance. I yes. find that, but then I fall back in it and I'm like, yeah, but if I'm a heretic, then I'm kind of screwed. Cause you know, Satan's going to be poking me in the butt with a pitchfork and <laughs> the fiery depths of hell for the rest of my life. That is strangely homoerotic, but okay, go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, um, so unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately we need to start wrapping up, but as we've had this conversation, uh, a few things come to me. One is that we are not in the position to offer answers. And that is very much, I think, what this podcast is about. It's called Sacred Tension. I am not an expert in any way. I mean, I'm a yoga teacher with a, with a degree in music who manages a grocery store. I'm just, I'm just an ordinary guy. I don't yeah. have answers. And, and I think the point of this conversation is that we're still in the thick of this. We are still figuring this shit out. We are still in the woods. And I don't know if I'll ever be out of the woods. I don't know if I'll ever figure this out. And I want, and, and that's what this podcast is about. It's not so much about the answers. It's not so much about dispensing wisdom or expertise, but it is about the process. And... Yeah and being mindful of where we are right now, wherever it is, wherever that is in this moment. I think a lot of people are in this place. A lot yeah. of ordinary people, just like you and me, who are struggling to understand the world. And so people who come from religious backgrounds, but who are trying to reconcile faith and science. And that is a very hard and lonely place to be. And I guess if there's one thing I hope this conversation will succeed, it is not necessarily a sense of direction. I don't know if I can provide that, but uh, maybe some company. Maybe we can, you know, light a fire together, light a campfire out in this wilderness, out in this darkness, and just share some time together. And that's my hope. So Justin, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I'm sure we can talk for, for many, many more hours. It's been three hours. <laughs> we have talked for over three hours. That's I, wild. I, I don't know how much of this is going to get into the show, but but I, I, I'm going to try to get as much as I can. And so, Justin, where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter. Uh, Justin did it, 411. I don't know what I did, but I did something, and... I'll give you the 411 on it. <laughs> You're doing a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot. If this um, conversation is, is witness to anything, it's that you've done it and you will continue to do it and, and so on and so forth. <laughs> well, that's our show. If you have enjoyed this and want to check out more of my work, you can find me at sbradfordlong.com where I have dozens and dozens of articles on everything ranging from mental health to LGBT issues, faith and doubt, and whatever else is on my mind. If you want to respond to our thoughts in this podcast, you can comment on the page for this podcast on my website at sbradfordlong.com. As usual, the music is by The Jelly Rocks, and the logo is by Justin Caleb Bryant. And thank you so much for joining us. 